Hello, and welcome back to the Wealth Report podcast by Hightower Advisors, where each month we have a conversation with someone from the Hightower community to discuss timely topics that can help us all move toward our definition of true wealth. This month, we will be sharing a conversation on cybersecurity that was recorded in December between Hightower's Chief Information Officer, Sarah Khan, and FTI Consulting Global's Senior Managing Director of Forensic and Litigation Consulting, Jordan Ray Kelly. Sarah and I were talking before today about what we thought would be most helpful for this audience, what would be the most interesting. And we, I've already heard the word cybersecurity two or three times. And so, first of all, it's a cybersecurity accomplishment that you're all here on Zoom. Honestly, the fact that we've all been able to join, we've all learned so much about technology in the last eight or nine months. I think this really goes to show that this is a cyber savvy audience. You know how to get on Zoom. You've understood how to connect. And you've probably been hearing lots of cybersecurity tips over the last eight or nine months. And I think that Sarah and I'll have a chance to share some of our favorite cybersecurity tips. But one thing I just ask you to think about for the next you know, hour or so that we have together is shifting your mindset from thinking about cybersecurity to thinking about cyber resilience. And what does that mean? That means really changing the culture, both in your mind and in your organization, about what it means to to be successful when it comes to facing cyber events. So for me, I think less about being able to avoid and ward off 100% of attacks. And I think more about helping organizations learn how to bounce back because cyber threats aren't going away. Ransomware events have quadrupled during the pandemic alone. So how can we change our culture of how we think about cybersecurity to improve our ability to recover and thus to improve our cyber resilience? So when I think about that, I think about what is it that you need to do to be able to recover? Well, practice makes permanent. So we really need to think about cyber fire drills right? You always think about how you would evacuate your employees from physical spaces. Have you had your employees practice major cyber events? What would you do if your entire network went down? Do they know how to respond if they're seeing suspicious behaviors on the network? Um, Do you know how to respond if you're seeing suspicious behaviors on the network? Who would you call? What would you do? So that practice element, that testing things out, whether it's in tabletop exercises or broader scale exercises across your organization is something that I think is really important. And then building in those redundant systems, and I know Sarah can talk about how at Hightower, they've done a lot of work to make sure that their systems are redundant and resilient. But above all, you need a plan and you need a playbook. And when it comes to building cyber resilience, you're never going to get there without a lot of adequate preparation. What will you do? Who will say what? Who will be involved? Because at the end of the day, cyber events will happen. And as Megan said, I feel like I've seen it all. And I'm sure anybody who's worked in cybersecurity can say the same thing. So we need to change the way that we, we've trained ourselves and trained our employees and our organizations to think about the concept of cyber safety so that we can think more about how we recover and less about the types of events that we're going to face. Yeah. And to um, add along to that, so as being Hightower clients or prospects, what the service that is provided is just resiliency around any of the systems and the applications. But, you know, working with when there's an actual incident or an issue that happens, because oftentimes we talk about how not to do something, but what happens when you actually 
do click or your credentials do get compromised? And how do you get back into an operating state as quickly as possible? So in that scenario, there's a lot of things that we've thought through. Um, on the Hightower site, we do have something called an incident response. And each one of you may have your own similar incident responses. It's not just a corporate way of thinking. It's just, you know, if my identity were, or if my credentials were to be compromised, how do I get back into an operating state? And how do I secure my account? So in an incident response situation at Hightower, we have a series of steps that occur. And one is to secure the account as quickly as possible. So that may be reset your account, contact the, you know, the system owner, and just make sure that you have contained the issue to as you know a smaller footprint as possible. The uh, second scenario that happens is basically the communication stream to make sure that we understand from a discovery standpoint, what's the damage that's been done and contain that. Then secondly, communicate and make sure that you know, the involved parties are are known so that they can take safety measures as well. So Hightower, we have an enterprise risk team that works with our clients uh, in the scenario if there was a, you know, some sort of issue with a credential, need to validate something, we're making sure that we have communication flow back and forth so that everyone is aware of, you know, what that exposure may have been. And that's something that you may want to think about with your own accounts. You know, if if something were to happen, do I know my password? Do I know how to reset it? How do I contain my contain my blast radius, basically? Yeah, and I think you hit on something, Sarah, that's really important. What do I do if I click? And and your organization has done a lot of great things to get that that set up in such a way that you have a process and a plan. But I think. In the last 10 years, what we really saw in the evolution of the implementation of cyber rules and standards at organizations were people really putting in place punishments for making cyber mistakes. And that's a little bit of a broad statement. But one thing I saw often was that if an employee failed three phishing tests, and those are the types of test emails that organizations will send out to check on your willingness to click on what might be suspicious or malicious links, that if an employee were to fail three of those tests, they would have to take remedial cybersecurity training. And that's that's just one example of the types of kind of punishment programs that were put into place to make people understand how important their behaviors were on the network and how much what they could do could affect their entire company. But we've seen a shift just recently, and it's a little bit maybe controversial, but certainly a little bit more cutting edge to change that mindset from punishment to reward. And so that means making people excited about clicking the links. In fact, this just this morning, I got an email that was very strange and it said, here's the request of the, the photographer's uh, exhibits that you wanted to see. And it was a PDF and it said, please let us know if you're interested in purchasing any of these. And it, cert- it probably was a misdirected email, but it certainly was not an email that I was looking to receive. And so the first thing I did was send it over to, to my internal team to say, this, this looks suspicious to me. And they told me there was nothing at all. But to change that mindset where people want to say anything that doesn't seem quite right, I'm feeling very comfortable to say, I'm reporting this, or I want to let somebody know that this has happened. So incentivizing those contributions, I think is a change that we're starting to see, and I think is making a big difference. And it's not just encouraging people to over-report, but it's also giving them the, the tools that they need to report when they've already messed up. And so what I mean by that is, and I'm seeing this really often, is they're probably the least sexy cyber event title ever is the business email compromise. You might have heard of this, and it sometimes it isn't even perpetrated via cyber means, but it's where through some type of social engineering, 
people in your organization, often in administrative assistant roles or in the accounts payable roles, will receive directions to change wiring addresses such that funds will be wired to the wrong accounts. And this is causing people to lose millions of dollars every day. And so often in the aftermath of these events, I'm at companies and I'm talking to the employees who were responsible for often making the mistakes that led to these issues. And what I find time and time again, truly on a daily basis, is that they do know that they made a mistake and they knew it when they made the mistake, but they didn't know what to do. They felt that they had done something wrong. They had clicked on the link and then they thought, well, gosh, how can I walk this back? So training your employees about that the sooner that they act, that they can really make a difference in events, that if they see something to say something, we've heard that so much as in the the buildup of the Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S., but training employees to not be afraid to say, I think I messed up and I need help now. I think that's such a shift that I think, especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, can make a big difference in improving internal security of your organization. Absolutely. And uh, social engineering is something that we've been hearing quite often about. So, you know, when we talk about social media or the tactics that are used to make it easy for a person to fall for, you know, a phishing attempt um, is increasing and people are getting clever. So, you know, some of the tactics that we do want to use for social media is, um, which I know is like a popular question um, that comes up is just, you know, how much are you sharing out there about yourself or how guessable are your passwords because you're putting so much of your information out there. To give you an example, which is probably a very common example, you know, someone names their password after their dog with a few numbers, right? Or people are trying to do some dictionary attacks, which means that there's a series of, you know, known words and then they're trying different manipulations of it. So what we ask users to do is just be aware of some of these, you know, be diligent and just be aware of when you're constructing passwords or when you do see an email coming in where we see a lot of things with header information like, you know, your blood type matches what is very COVID-19, you know, what COVID-19 usually targets, get your free test today, or there's who articles that are being published or, you know, something related to the elections. So that people are just getting clever with how they try to lure in some of the, some of the users that are out there. And it makes it very easy to click on it. But we don't want any of our employees to ever feel embarrassed that they clicked on it. We just, you know, we want to make the tools, as Jordan was mentioning, available where you just are able to click a button and inform the service desk or some sort of tech team to take a look at it. So we're able to determine, you know, was anything affected? What was compromised? Did anything get downloaded on the computer? So I think what we want is just our, you know, just to just for the user base to be aware of some of these tactics that are out there. But secondly, if you do make the mistake of clicking it, it's okay. It happens. We just want to be able to contain it as much as possible. Sarah, you know, I'm not a CISO. I help with organizations with these kinds of challenges all the time, but do you feel like you guys were ready to go remote? And if, and if not, what were the biggest challenges that you saw over the last 10 months or so? Sure. So our organization, we do have, we're, you know, distributed around about 60 different cities. And a lot of our advisors are, you know, traveling for business. And during the pandemic, everyone's been home. But due to the travel and just being more cloud enabled, a lot of our solutions were already remote friendly, accessible. But one of the key things was just making sure 
because when you're not in an organization or on the in the office, there's a lot of enterprise grade security that is built into the network. So when you're working from home, you're relying on your personal network to provide a certain level of security. So one of the challenges is just making sure that users are aware that when they're working from home, they're a little bit more diligent on what they're doing, but also having some of those minimum requirements or just upping the security or hardening some of the the network or internet services that they have at home. And I think it might be just a quick conversation with the internet carrier, but you know, oftentimes there's there's a bit of a safeguard when you're in the corporate office because there's an enterprise network that's protecting you. But in our scenario, what we did was just enable a lot more of the system security that's available. So if you're engaging with email or if there's engagement with an application, we've just made sure that dual factor authentication is in place. So oftentimes a lot of the applications that folks are using, you know, non-corporate or non-enterprise, just, you know, say Gmail and things like that. If you have the dual factor authentication option available, make sure you turn it on. It's just a great way of someone compromise your credentials. It's another way of just stopping them from getting in further because it's an unrecognized device. The other way to protect yourself is just use password phrases and that are long, you know, or password phrases that you can remember. Password phrases, I wouldn't say that you can remember, you know, but basically auto-generated. There's great tools like Dashlane. Um, Jordan, I don't know if you have any other tool recommendations, but Dashlane, LastPass, those are some of the tools that do a great job of managing all your passwords and generating a password for you that is not easily guessable or it's not makes it a little harder to get into to applications or you know whatever account you're trying to log into. So I would highly recommend uh, some of those things, but that was definitely the challenge is just, you know, the enterprise security isn't in place to protect you. So people are relying on their home network, but basically everything was cloud enabled for us. So the transition was pretty smooth. We just had to take another pass at making sure that we are enabling other features for security. And I think some of our clients may have gotten reached out to, to enable dual factor authentication for, you know, the client report management system and things like that. So yeah, I think that's that's great news. I can tell you, and I hopefully my uh, this won't get back to to my CEO, but I think even FTI wasn't as ready to go in the pandemic. I mean, people kind of left their desks on Friday and never came back, and that's really raised a couple of anecdotes to me that I think can be helpful to think about um, the challenges that we might face in imparting the right level of of security to our employees and to our organizations. Because I think at every level of technical competence, we all have to know our limitations and know that whatever tools we might be using, they might make us feel safe, but there's often always workarounds or bugs in those tools. I mean, people say, I'm using I'm using WhatsApp, so that's secure. I'm using Signal, so that's secure. So those are both uh, encrypted end-to-end messaging platforms. But all of these platforms have, have bugs and have issues, issues that have been compromised. But m- more on a working level, At my company, we use a a VPN. People are often familiar with that acronym, a a virtual private network. And I can say that because my parents this weekend said that they've been using a VPN. Uh, They couldn't explain what it meant, but they did know they were using it. And then therefore they were secure. And that's actually exactly um, what I worry about when organizations roll out security measures, but don't have appropriate time to teach and educate their employees about what those mean. So in the example of the VPN, uh, at an at incredibly high level, it's essentially a, a way to route your network traffic in an anonymizing fashion. And so we have a, one of those that we offer to our employees at my company, and people log in and they use the VPN, and then they think they are secure. They say, well, I'm logged into the VPN, so I must be 
one, both anonymous and two, secure in everything I'm doing. And both of those uh, assumptions are incorrect. Um, at my company, we use something called a dual tunnel VPN, which means only certain types of traffic uses the VPN. So most of their home internet browsing is just directly going from whatever their home internet service provider is, in my case, Verizon, it's going directly to those websites. And that information is available and can be captured by different entities that are operating websites and could also be, could also put me in a situation to be the victim of a cyber event. And it also doesn't have that anonymizing feature that people think it does. So giving people the right level of security tools, but also taking the time to educate them about what those tools are really offering, I think is something that can make a big difference in the time of, of this remote work. Another example, you mentioned password security. And I think people, I, I mean, even I have some insecure passwords. I, I do use LastPass, which Sarah mentioned, which is a password manager, but it's also had one or two instances where people have said, oh, LastPass could be compromised for different purposes. So every platform that you use that perhaps introduces a certain level of security could also introduce risks. But password management is a really funny thing. And I think probably everybody on this call, I'm guessing, would has at least one password that's kind of their go-to, you know, the dog's name and a, a character and a, a number. And they're using different conventions of that on different pages. I won't ask you to raise your hands because I'm sure it would be everyone in the Zoom. But the point I want to make about that is that those passwords are often so already compromised online and you can go to websites like Have I Been Pwned? We could send that out. But there are a variety of websites where you can see if your email address and any um, passwords have been compromised. Those, those are just done. And if you're comfortable using them and you want to keep using them for certain things that perhaps don't have any financial information tied to that, I totally understand. But a funny story, which maybe will be memorable to you, is that um, at my own company, we, we have a, a tool that we use to scrape the dark web. So essentially the unindexed part of the internet to look for our employees' email addresses, and any associated passwords. And we do that just for a level of added security on our own systems. I'm sure Sarah has methods similar to that. So recently, we got a particularly large batch of email addresses and passwords that were associated with my company. And there's always a sense that, you know, these could be wrong. These might not be passwords that people are actually using internally. And that's often the case. But in this case, I was going through them to see one thing I'll often do is check my own email address and see if I can find an associated password. Then I'll know if it's legitimate or not. And there's so much that can really be revealed by these passwords. So there's often things, I mean, nothing inappropriate that I saw, but things along the lines of, I saw one that said, my wife is hot, number one, right? And so, you know, that's pretty innocent and maybe gives you a good laugh, but these are, these are data points that you're revealing about yourself. So if you would be hesitant to give someone your social security number or your date of birth in an online form, why would you also be willing to, to hide behind those little asterisks other personal information about yourself? And so this can be your children's names, your pet's names, street addresses we often see. So be thinking about that just because when you type it and it doesn't show up on the screen, somewhere those those numbers and letters are really out there in the internet and can be revealing about you. So passwords are a funny thing. And I, I couldn't agree with Sarah more about the importance of keeping them private along with multi-factor authentication. I think those are two of the things that I think are the best we can do to keep ourselves secure. Absolutely. One of the other common passwords I've seen is password one, two, three, four. 
password 4321. So these are just, you know, easily guessable, but it tells you a lot about a person too. So you can start profiling a person based on how you've seen their previous past passwords if they've been compromised. You know, there's this large dictionary that gets assembled. And so oftentimes the most commonly used passwords are the ones that are being attempted. So, you know, we've banned certain passwords within our firm, which is like password one, two, three, four, or summer and some year or some sort of fall season, you know, uh, some sort of season and then some numbers after it. So, yeah, I think password complexity is is huge. And, you know, these these password vault manager tools really help making sure that, you know, you're coming up with passwords or generating passwords without having to put in some of your own thought process into it, because then that could be social engineered. Jordan, I had a question for you. So as, you know, previously working with the FBI, how do you leverage relationships? Um, you know, what kind of relationships would you recommend, you know, corporations having or even folks having? Yeah. So it, that always comes up. People say, do I need to work with the FBI? Should I report this to the FBI? And that's something that uh, obviously is near and dear to my heart because uh, I spent a long time there working on cybersecurity issues. So I think that there are Two, two pieces that are really important is one is to make relationships in well in advance of any type of cyber event you might be facing and think about where you fall in an organization about whether you're the right person to do that and also whether you might have a view on that. Um, I can speak to another example. I think uh, every time I join these, I probably should do a disclaimer that please, please nobody know my CEO and tell them this. But I mean, the FBI is a wonderful organization that does a great job putting a lot of sweat equity into building relationships and finding the right people at your company to talk to if they know about a cyber risk that you're facing. But they all that's also not their their business. Their business is not to, you know, keep a list and say Sarah's the CISO at Hightower. So if we have an issue at Hightower, we can find her. And that that really came to light when I joined my current company because I, I was contacted by somebody and, and FTI is headquartered in Washington, D.C. And I was contacted by someone from the FBI's Washington, D.C. field office. And they said, hi, we need to talk to you about something that might be an issue at your company related to cybersecurity. And we called your front desk and they said, you guys don't have anyone in cybersecurity. But since we, we happen to know a friend of your friend, and so they reached out to me and we made the right connections. But what that is should tell you is that who who answers your phone at your company? And what would they say if someone called and said, I'm calling from the FBI and we have a, a cyber incident we need to talk to you about? I mean, would they say, we don't do that here? We can't help you? I mean, how would they walk through that conversation? And that's one, that's something I've said to a couple of different groups of people. And I've seen a lot of light bulbs go off because they've thought, yeah, that probably is not what I want. So building those relationships in advance puts you in a more strategically advantaged situation if the FBI does need to contact your organization because they do have access to great um, intelligence sources, both domestic and foreign, that provide insight. And they might see something related to your IP addresses on the internet and they might want to get in touch with you. And, and who do you want them to get in touch with? So depending on what your role is in an organization, you might want to think about that or ask that question, you know, hey, do you have a relationship with the FBI? Who would they call if, if they wanted to reach out to our company? Because uh, that can make a big difference both in speed, but also just in the level of cooperation and the relationship. And so the first part being that that proactive do these things in advance, it's not just the FBI, right? It can be other sorts of information sharing organizations that provide great sources of, of information that when a, a, big, a big event might be coming towards your company or towards your sector, they really get the word out in advance. But then if you do have an incident, there's that question of, 
should we report this? And I am always in favor of supporting it, but that's a really great question for your lawyer, because although I am an attorney, I don't play one here at FTI. So I am not in the business of giving people advice on that topic, but there have been some recent changes um, to policy guidance, in, particularly in the U.S., that makes reporting to law enforcement even more important. And one of those is just in the month of October, the Treasury Department, uh, their office of uh, related to sanctions and asset controls, released some guidance about whether or not uh, companies in the U.S. should be paying ransoms. And there's always been a lot of mixed thoughts across the cybersecurity community about whether or not one would pay a ransom. These are the types of payments that that cyber bad actors are asking for when they might be either holding your files hostage or alternatively threatening to expose your files online. So this, this guidance that came out from the Treasury Department said that you as a company and entity could actually be held liable for violations of sanctions laws by paying ransom payments. And the way that they would do that would be if you were paying a ransom payment to a designated sanctioned entity. And so that is actually pretty, should kind of be a game changer for people, although the sanctioned entity list doesn't necessarily keep up with the ransomware group. So that makes it a little bit more of a question, but that's down in the weeds. But part of what that guidance says is that it will be looked favorably upon you if you have reported and worked with law enforcement. So if you're in that situation where you're facing a ransomware event or another type of cybersecurity event, maybe it's a a business email compromise, like I mentioned earlier, because those are the two that we're seeing the most frequently, knowing who you're going to report to and knowing whether or not your company is behind that decision, those are really important things. And who gets to make that call? Is it your board? Is it your C-suite? Who's the person who will say, yes, we're going to go and report this to the FBI Or other local law enforcement is also another place where people often make those reports. And the FBI also has an organization that's part of the FBI called the Internet Crime Complaint Center, where they do aggregation of all different types of cybersecurity-related complaints that are coming in. So in some instances, I've gone to companies and they've said, we've decided not to go to the FBI. And as we're working through the event, I find out that someone in their in their IT department reported this online to the to the IC3, the Internet Crime Complaint Center. So having really thought that through in advance, making the relationships and then knowing what your plan or posture will be in the aftermath of an event, I think couldn't be more important. Sometimes the next question people say is, well, how do I do that? Uh, and that is not always as easy of, or clear cut of an answer, but there are great organizations to get involved in. InfraGuard is a public-private alliance between the FBI and often companies that are uh, looking at security challenges. So all different types of organizations, but there are many CISOs, CSOs, chief risk officers that are part of that group. But there, your local field office is often very excited to have a conversation with you. So I think that I would encourage people to figure out what is their uh, their local field office for their company and find out who's the best person in their company to make sure that those those bridges have been built well in advance of well in advance of an incident. Absolutely. And a few things that we do at Hightower is we are part of a financial services information sharing program, which allows us to know of threats before they're happening. So that's a great uh, relationship that we have that gives us a, a, you know, basically into a lot of members from various organizations, including the FBI. The other part is, as you know, being in financial services, our compliance department is, you know, we have, we work very closely with a lot of regulatory bodies. And so therefore, if there's issues or incidences that are discovered, we are basically leveraging those relationships to follow the protocol to get those reported. In the scenario where say devices are stolen and whatnot, 
We do have a relationship with our lo- local police where we're able to report that to try to confiscate or, you know, basically have that device returned back to us. So I, these relationships are quite important. Um, we want to leverage them as, uh, as you know, as required when incidences and issues happen. Oftentimes, we have tapped into a few relationships that, you know, ca- came in very useful. So I think the key that Jordan had mentioned is ensuring that you have that relationship established beforehand. Um, so that you're able to, you know, they're familiar with you, they're familiar with the organization, and they're able to, you know, jump right in and help in a productive manner. So Sarah, maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the things that we might see or expect to see on networks that might or might not be suspicious. One that came to me recently in my company was someone said that their mouse was moving on their own. The mouse cursor was just moving around the screen and they were not moving their cursor. And that's something that actually could be a suspicious event that could indicate that your computer is being controlled remotely. In the, in the world of the Bluetooth mouse, it could also just mean Bluetooth interference. Uh, but that's something that we definitely want to take seriously. And I think it's an example of just strange behavior um, on your computer. Or sometimes it's just, you know, computers getting old. But sometimes those are things that you really need to be looking out for. Do you have some examples, Sarah, on your end? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, we have had plenty of those types of issues reported to us. And you want to make sure that you have your antivirus up to date and uh, make sure that you're able to see what's on your computer. So if you're in an organization, definitely report something like that. We encourage that being reported. You know, don't dismiss it. Report it so that that way we can have a tech professional take a look at it. If you're noticing odd behavior, you should have a tech professional look at your device. When you do discover what was actually happening, it could just be an aging computer and it's time to get a new one. Or secondly, there is something that's on it. You want to get some sort of analysis done to determine what information was it collecting, what was happening, how long has that been sitting there, so that you can take the appropriate steps to you know, either report it or get it contained or make sure that you start changing, changing information or updating whoever or whatever was compromised. Yeah. I mean, I think that exactly what you've got there is the most important part. And if we think about on our credit cards, if something suspicious happens on our credit cards, you can't call your credit card company and have them kind of work through with you to just figure out if you can keep that same card number. Because I know sometimes that'd be so helpful. They're just going to send you a new card. And you should think about your passwords and your accounts the same way that, you know, I know it's a pain to to change passwords, although some of the password managers we've mentioned today can make that a little bit more streamlined. But once once you think that there might be something suspicious on on your computer, on your network, on your accounts, um, you need to do things like checking checking login activity, uh, learning where you can find that type of activity in your different accounts. Personal email accounts um, have great resources to show you when the last logins were. And so I, I personally, I look at those pretty regularly just to make sure I'm not seeing anything suspicious. Last night I was working from home and I have as many notifications set up on my machine as I can because I got a notification that my microphone had turned on and come to find out my WebEx was just updating. And so it wasn't anything to be alarmed of, but increasing that information flow to your, to your own machine and devices, whether that's you send a notification every time you log in, whether that's having those emails that might seem a little bit annoying, but those are the kinds of things can that can alert you to issues right away. And being alert to the issues can help you resolve them uh, much more quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things is 
when when this is happening and how you're targeted, oftentimes we do see senior members of company or organization, or if you're just a senior where you may be in the media, um, oftentimes there's more targeted attacks or you know ways to try to determine what computer you're using, what's your login information. So when these types of unusual things happen where you know you see some Bluetooth activity or your mouse is moving around, it is better to get that checked out just because you don't want to dismiss it. We we've seen that happen quite often with especially you know senior senior members of organizations or clients that are holding senior members senior positions that sometimes it is a little bit more targeted. So just being aware of it and then making sure that you're able to work through it and report the the um, the appropriate parties. Right, right. And I think that the the point you made about that being able to report if that's your home network, right? Just knowing knowing how you have it set up, knowing what security you have in place. Um, oftentimes when I'm working with even private citizens that have different types of cyber security events, and I say, do you have two-factor authentication? They often say, I don't know, I'm not sure. So the more you can improve and increase your level of awareness, the better you'll often be prepared to deal with events. Absolutely. So I think we have, I also just wanted to briefly touch on kind of the, the global changes of 2021. And I know we are going to have time to, to talk through some questions, but um, Sarah, is there anything that you think will be very different in 2021? Or are you, uh, are you thinking we'll just see more of the same? I mean, 2021, I think a lot more, um, there will definitely be more targeted attacks. And with COVID occurring, people just knowing the trend of, you know, there's a lot of organizations now announcing that they will be working from home until, you know, half half into the following year. I think it gives attackers a lot, you know, a better opportunity to kind of prep for that. So I think we'll see different patterns of people trying to target users on the internet. So I think that's something that we all need to be more aware of that it is only increasing. It's not that we're at a stagnant at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's getting worse and worse every day. And I think that the more unknowns of 2021, you know, will we be in offices? Will we be home? Um, How will we know where our employees and colleagues and friends and just people that we are talking to, where they're located and how we'll have confidence in that? I think people are getting stir crazy being locked in. So people are changing their locations. And so some of the security tactics that we've been using for years to identify anomalous behavior, like geolocation of your IP address, those are being rendered less useful. And I think, like you said, as the attacks continue to increase, I think that the the attack surface is growing larger and larger as we are more in and out of the offices than we ever were. Absolutely. So I have a few other topics that I wanted to hit on about just um, the different challenges that we have, but I know we have a lot of questions, so I don't want to run out of time for those. Megan, what do you recommend? Yeah, we definitely have a ton of questions and we'll do some Q&A with you, Jordan. Sarah, I know you needed to hop, so um, we can do some some quick Q&A. We've got some good stuff coming in. One thing that I thought was interesting, Jordan, was can you kind of talk a little bit on social media on some of the the quizzes that people are taking and how that exposes them to risk, um, you know, as they're putting in what's your kind of revealing their passwords, right? Do you think that people should avoid those at all costs? Yeah, I mean, I think social media is a big, big umbrella term where people maybe are more concerned about the the risks that are being introduced. I mean, people often say to me, oh, you're at the FBI in the White House. I assume you have no social media presence. And I say, no, I do. I mean, I think you have to just accept that you can't remove yourself from the Internet. It's very difficult unless you uh, kind of took that as a goal 12 or 15 years ago. It's, It's incredibly difficult. But, yeah, you should think about the information that you're providing now. 
I often you see this as you being used more in a joke context of people saying things like, what was your first street that you lived on? What was your dog's name? And then extrapolating that out to say, now we have all these additional words for your passwords. That absolutely can happen and is real. And people should think about that. I know I personally have a date of birth that I use as a a false date of birth for different types of verifications. But at this point, that date of birth is out there so much that that one might be the one that, you know, someone would be able to get into a different account with. So could it be done? Yes. But the tools in a lot of ways are more sophisticated than they would need to use online quizzes to do that. Because uh, I think Sarah mentioned these dictionary type attacks these aren't me and you sitting here typing in, you know, Megan number one is our password. These are automated robot tools that are attacking your account by throwing hundreds of thousands of different potential passwords against it. So yes, in a very sophisticated attack, we would see something like that. What I worry more about on social media is people providing information about their whereabouts. And that I know people that long have heard that threat, you know, don't say you're traveling because people will come and rob your house. But it's more, actually, that is the bigger thing that we see when it comes to that business email compromise attack that I mentioned. For, in one example, uh, a CEO of a company said they were really looking forward to attending an event. Uh, they were couldn't wait to go to this event. And so then from an, um, what ended up being a spoofed email address, they contacted their executive assistant and said, I know I never do this, but you know, you and I both know I'm off at the High Tower Conference. And so I need you to to wire this money differently than we normally do. And I know this is very unusual and I'm sorry that I can't take your call, but because, and then when they said that, the executive assistant said, well, this is obviously them, right? Because it's this piece of detailed information. So I think more, I worry more about providing these little nuggets that would be used in a, a broader kind of social engineering tactics, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I know you've touched on a lot of this, um, but as everyone's working from home, can you talk a little bit more about some of those cybersecurity issues? Like if someone's using a home PC or and using that for work, is it more vulnerable? And also as if multiple people in the family are all sharing one network, is that making things more vulnerable? Are there some best practices that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think there there's no right or wrong, or I mean, there, there are right and wrong answers, but there are no really kind of clear-cut answers. Someone said to me the other day, can you say definitively if Windows 7 or Windows 10 is more secure? Um, I think there are plenty of security researchers that have said 10 is more secure, but it doesn't mean 7 isn't without its issues. So what you hit on there is your home PC often doesn't have the same cybersecurity tools and software that your a corporate-issued PC would. And why is that? You think, well, I got this laptop and it came with, you know, AdAware or some other type of software. But most of those subscription services that your company provides, or if if you're uh, working in a big organization, those are expensive services. Um, And they slow your machine down and they do lots of things that if someone's just buying you a really fast and great home PC, they're not going to have a ton of, of different types of security kind of firewall endpoint type detection. Um, So yeah, your home networks are less secure. They might be less up to date in terms of how the current cutting edge threats that they're protecting you against. Uh, Some of the most expensive tools that your company might have are updating very regularly. And if you're like me, they contact me all the time and say, we need you to update. And those updates are really just when they get new information about threats, they're updating your machine so your machine will be protected against them. So yeah, there is a difference in your home network and not. 
But a lot of, you know, it used to be, you would think you'd open an attachment and something malicious would execute on your machine, right? We'd go to a website and we'd get what was called kind of a drive-by malware, drive-by download. But in some ways, even though the cybersecurity threats have gotten much worse and much more common, the sophistication is just not really needed, right? Because if you're willing to click on a link, so for example, in my company, we use uh, LinkedIn Learning. Mm-hmm. And so if, if I sent you an email and I said, Megan, you have not taken your LinkedIn learning training, you better go do it. Here's the link. And I direct you to a page that looks just like LinkedIn and you're willing to type your email and password there. I don't really have to be all that clever and creative. Now, and what usually happens then is someone will email and say, man, my LinkedIn learning page isn't working or something like that. And maybe we'll alert them. And then we talked a lot about changing passwords but this, the really sophisticated things, I, I do worry a little bit about them less, but the, your your computer does matter. Your device does matter. And to your question about sharing networks and sharing home PCs and machines, absolutely that is of concern. And the main reason there is because we, we talk about uh, computer threats moving laterally. So all they need is really one entry point, and that could be your home network into your corporate network, or it could be your your teenage kids network into your network, right? And so that's why you do have to be on the lookout for those suspicious behaviors. Do need to have the security features like the logins turned on that are going to give you additional information to say, this doesn't seem correctly. This doesn't seem correct. Why would I only be accessing my Gmail account, for example, from one IP, which would be your home IP, to now I'm accessing it from an IP that I don't know. Now that could be something like your cell phone or there could be a, a really innocuous explanation, but yeah, lateral access and the, the sharing of devices certainly does increase risks. We had a question, Should and I know you talked about VPNs and your parents' successful use of a VPN. Should, is, do you think it's a best practice to use a VPN from home use? Is that more secure? Yeah, sometimes. So, I mean, you know, I, in, in the course of the work I do, that's a lot of it's investigative. I'll use a VPN. It's like, let's say I'm accessing a, a ransomware actor's website. I might use a VPN to obfuscate my home identity, but you all got to also have to remember that now I'm giving all my web traffic to that VPN. So meaning who, who owns and operates that VPN? What if they get hacked? What about the logs and repositories that they have? So I think you have to think about it. I heard someone say the other, I actually uh, said in a, a training about different types of o- open source intelligence. And someone asked that question, should I always use a VPN? And the, the guy said, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, I, I think there's rarely any harm to doing it, if you're, especially if you're using one that you're comfortable with and that's known to be secure. But it does mean you're kind of rerouting your traffic to giving it to many people online, to giving one person, the not one entity, not person, but one company, the knowledge of everywhere you're going. Um, and that can be a risk. Here's a quick one. Uh, people talk about Apple pro- Apple products are more secure. Do you find that that's true or uh, urban legend? Um, you know, I think it's funny because in, in my uh practice and my company, most of the most technical guys, so, you know, the ones that are highly paranoid of all types of cyber events are Android users. So, you know, not Apple users that I don't, I wouldn't use that as the the lesson to be learned here. I think that uh, what we saw for a long, long time is that there were a lot more people using PCs. And so as a result, the, the bad actors were doing more to come after the, the PCs because there were that was a, a wider surface area for attack. Apple does do a lot of, of interesting security things that I, I think are pretty innovative and cutting edge and they they are just set up very differently, right? They're not they're just very different operating systems. 
Um, but I'd be hesitant to recommend one over the other. I think that it, you got to really know your risks with both, but you don't have to know them at a technical level. Just know that they still exist. Right. And actually, that's a good segue. We had somebody ask. Um, we've talked a ton about PCs and 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 computers and and home network, uh, mobile phones. Is there are there certain things that we should be thinking of, or are the native security pieces that are already in there good enough? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, mo- mobile malware and mobile devices are still a lot more sophisticated types of threats, I think. I think we're still at a place where the targeting of you via mobile phone is more sophisticated, but we're seeing lots of attacks via texting. So you'll hear these called uh, the smishing or the vishing, and people will get a, a text and it will say, you know, hey, go here, click here. Same as we talked about, you might be directed to a website where you might be inclined to enter your, your username and password. And then people are also using this to get into, use your phone as the second factor for accounts you might have turned on. So you have to really understand how that works on your phone um, for, a, for a while. And still we're seeing this situation that we call SIM jacking. So not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but you know your ne- your cell phone number is your cell phone number because of a little piece of metal that's put in your phone called your SIM card. And if for some reason uh, someone were to go and get your SIM card replicated at your mobile phone provider, they could now put it in a phone and they would have your phone number. And so if you are receiving texts as your second factor on an account, right, you're getting a message that says, this is my code or something like that. Now a bad actor can have that code. So mobile phones certainly do introduce additional risks. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily worse, but people do need to think about protecting their device and their security. And I, I don't worry that much about what passwords they have saved on their phones or anything like that, but they need to be thinking about the types of messages they're receiving and if that might be something that they should have their eyebrows raised to. Okay. You talked about how you have, I thought that was interesting how you talked about having sort of a fake birthday that you use. Do you think that Somebody was asking about, do you, should you have one email address for financial uh, information or one that's more secure or do you have multiple or does that just get confusing? Well, I think you have to think about, I mean, we are human beings, right? So you have to think about what's going to make the most sense for you. If you have an email address and you want to tie that to your bank account and your credit card, and that's the only thing you'll use that account for, and it will be highly secure, it will have two-factor on and you'll get an alert every time that account is accessed and that will make you more secure, then great. I don't personally do that. Um, However, my account that I use for what I would say is everything. And according to Cyber Monday, I really use it for everything because I got about 500 emails yesterday. But I do keep that account very secure. So I'm very comfortable um, knowing what I'm doing with that account. I think you need to think about locking down those accounts individually. So um, if you have, you know, your Wells Fargo banking account, do you have a second factor set up there? What account identifiers do you have that are making that account as secure as possible? I also think there are, you should be just somewhat hesitant to provide information freely. So for example, you might get a notice from your credit card that says, hey, in order to keep this information that we have about you up to date and maybe even increase your credit limit, why don't you retell us your address and your income? And lots of times that really is your credit card company saying that. But I think every time you get an email like that, you should just think, no, I don't need to do that, right? I don't, why, I don't need to provide that additional data point because 
if 99% of the time it's, it's, it's innocent and nothing's going to go wrong, then great. But for the percentage of time that you might find yourself on a website that you don't want to be on providing information that you shouldn't provide, um, especially anything that has to do with uh, data points, like we mentioned, your social security number, your date of birth, bank accounts, anything related to financial information. Uh, I just really would, would take a second thought about that. One other thing I want to mention is the notion of trying to be extra secure and talking directly to your bank. So one thing that some bad actors are doing now is they are registering fake websites and phone numbers, and they are experts at what we call search engine optimization so that they are pushing up their help number very high on your Google result. And, you know, sometimes the Google results will be very optimized. There's a big black number and that he typed that into his phone and, um, and it was a company they had perfect you know, American English. And they said, great, we'll help you. We will, we will get you through this. And so you have to really, really think. I mean, even if you think you're doing the right things, is there something you can do to take it to another level of safety and security? You know, is it can you call the number only on your credit card or bank card, right? The things that uh, you might think are going to be the, the extra validation of looking up the number yourself still could put you at risk. So I do, I worry about those things. So what, yeah, that's, uh, you just freaked me out. What happens when it's too late, right? So especially, you know, someone brought up a lot of times seniors are the ones that are defrauded most. How do you know it's too late? And what are the, uh, and we've talked a little bit, do this, but what maybe what are the first three things you should do when you realize it's too late? Well, it depends, you know, it depends on, on your bank and a lot of the circumstances there, right? Like a lot of companies, so there are a lot of these new currency companies that are building in measures that if you have what's called an, an ATO or an account takeover, that they will make you whole, but not all of them. So so in some cases, you'll be helped just by the nature of which organization you're doing the, the banking with. The, the being ready to report to law enforcement is something that could really make a big difference. The, the FBI has something where if you make a, a wire transfer to the wrong place and you identify with it within 72 hours, they can often stop that and get the money back. Yeah. And so, you know, there, the, but these are situations you just hope to not have to deal with at all, right? Because even if it might be possible to be made whole or to be made partially whole, you know, these are just incredibly harrowing circumstances for people, which I think, and I certainly don't mean to be alarmist, but they are the kind of situations that if you're transferring money, if you're giving access to these kind of root level bank accounts, you really need to to not just be sure, but you need to be double, triple, quadruple sure that you're dealing with the right person. You know, the one thing we'll see is they'll say people will get on that wrong help number and they'll say, okay, but in order for me to help you, I need you to validate your account information. So tell me your name and your account number and the last four of your social and all of this information. And now you've given away all of the keys to the kingdom of your accounts, if you will. So I'm not, I certainly don't mean to sound that like it's a hopeless situation because I don't think it is, but I do think that it really is a situation where people need to be even more careful than they think they need to be. And people who think that they're savvy, savvy online operators need to, to maybe, you know, just take a little bit of, of humble pie because I personally, I mean, this cybersecurity has been my life and my career. And I am probably the person who reports the most, who calls our internal help and says something doesn't seem right. And, you know, I'm sure on one hand you might think, well, doesn't she know? But I, I just take, I, I guess I have seen it all, like you said, Megan, and I just take everything from the perspective of, 
I don't want to be the one that, you know, has, has such a huge and traumatic circumstance as a result of these cyber bad guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the cyber bad guys. Um, so, and actually we had somebody say like, uh, one of the first steps would be to lock your credit reports, right? If, if something happens there, if, is that enough? Uh, somebody brought up, for instance, brought locked the credit reports and then got a notification that someone tried to open a card and he, it didn't go through. So is that proving that it's working or are there additional things that you should still do? You know, I think that's a funny question because, and now if you, if you're the victim of a breach, you're going to get some kind of notice that says we're going to pay for different types of credit monitoring. I personally do have standing credit monitoring that is actually not one of the free ones. I do pay for it and I get a notice uh, in my very secure email every time something happens. And it's usually something, you know, something depressing, like, you know, your credit balance has decreased or something. But I do think you should have some eyes on that, that process. You know, you should be cognizant of changes related to your credit. Now, I don't know that there is one service or another that does that the best, but I, and I think people maybe become again overly confident in in having that set up. They go, well, I I bought this, I bought this service, now I'm secure. And I think it's really about figuring out what works best for you. But but definitely approaching it eyes wide open that you need to be you know don't become complacent to those alerts. I mean whether it's you know a two factor authentication text or getting these emails. I think I got one today that my something had happened with my credit. And these are the messages you need to look at. Even if you're getting them a couple times a week, these are the types of alerts that need to be top of mind and don't just become something that you miss because in major events over and over again, people say, well, I had that set up, but I just didn't look at it. Quick question. You know, on, on an Apple, it says use this strong password or this is the suggested strong password. Do you, is that a best practice? Do you find those are pretty secure? Yeah, those are, I mean, that's a password. That's essentially a feature of password management, like LastPass. I mean, as the main thing is don't put yourself in a situation where you don't know what password is where, because then I do know, and I think studies have shown, you'll become frustrated with it and you won't you practice secure behaviors and you'll you'll do all different types of things to put yourself at risk. So just figure out what works best for you, whether that's, I, I have LastPass on my, uh, my desktop and I also have it on my mobile phone. And then all my passwords just port from place to place. And it's very convenient. I can never say, I don't know, because I it's there in my password manager. Um, so if LastPass gets hacked, I'm completely uh, out of luck. But I think it's very secure and I'm very comfortable with it. So just figure out what works best for you. So what works best for me is putting them on post-its behind my... <laughs> Fine. Probably, probably not secure. I, we're, we are at the hour. This was um, slightly scary, but more informative. So Jordan, Good. thank you so very much. Um, really, really helpful. And I think every makes everybody know that just like you said, even if you think you're savvy, um, just take that extra step. It's it's not worth being a hero. You're best better off making sure things are right. Yeah, I aim to be a little wisdom. Scary. Yeah, no, I aim to be at least a little bit scary. I mean, I I uh, used to give talks with a friend from the FBI who talked a lot about the Chinese and their, their use of genetic and DNA information. And I, I said, I always hope to be just a little bit less scary than him. Yeah, so that, that was, sounds worse. <laughs> if it was a little bit scary, then it's perfect. There you go. Well, thank you, Jordan, so very much. And thank you for everybody that participated. If there are additional questions, you can definitely go through your advisor and ask them and we can either they can provide some answers or we will be able to loop back with some more information from Jordan. So really appreciate everyone's time. And Jordan, just thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thanks to Sarah and Jordan for sharing their depth of knowledge with us. 
We hope you found this episode of the Wealth Report podcast informative and insightful. If you have any lingering questions after today's episode, please contact your financial advisor. From all of us here at Hightower Advisors, be well and stay safe. Hightower is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data in other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data in information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast guests and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.